why does Adam Ward have a baseball card? How does that work? No, well, you know, don't. don't oh, work. is this part of the show? You're wow. You're really like a detective here. All of a sudden, I do don't I know. get a baseball card? Because that'd be really cool. I don't know. I don't know. To, uh, Man, there's really no guarantees. Not everyone gets one. It's nice to have a podcast host with a lot of spare time on his hands. He does a lot of cool stuff. <laughs> I got no spare time on my hands, man. I got no spare time. I put it all into this and all into you. And I'm reading your book and listening to your book. I, I just, know. you know, it's got like many doors to cover and knock down. No. But yeah. I actually mean that in a serious way. And yeah. like, I'm sure you've seen other podcasts where people are just like, uh, so tell me what is the third door? Right. And you're just like. There goes Zonk. my first question. Okay. No, okay, okay. <laughs> yeah. Oh, shit. shit. All right. All right. All right. How do you do? Yeah. What do you do? Joe Rogan, just out of curiosity, do you Joe Rogan this in the sense that you just start in conversation and it just rolls from there? Yeah. Do you I do... don't like using the term Joe Rogan this. I don't think, I'm not trying to Joe Rogan anything right do now. You, but he, uh, he did start that style, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where he's just talking and talking. The show starts sort of in the middle of a conversation. You might already be on the show. You don't even know it, Alex. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Our guest today is not only a longtime friend of mine, he's also the youngest business author ever signed to Penguin Random House Publishing in their 80-plus year history. His incredible book, The Third Door, The Wild Quest to Uncover How the World's Most Successful People Launched Their Careers, took off and has changed lives. It became an international bestseller, translated into dozens of languages, inspiring millions across the world. He's become one of the most sought after speakers for some of the biggest, most successful corporations and universities around the country from Dell, Nike, IBM, MTV, GoPro, Harvard. He probably did a keynote during this whole introduction. I can't keep tabs <laughs> of it all. We can't list them all. And he's done all of this before his 30th birthday. But above all, he is one of the most enthusiastic, passionate, infectious, <laughs> inspiring people that I have ever met. My good friend, Alex Benayan. You are in the zone. Thank you, man. I wish every time we hang out, it starts just like that. You that require was... me to do that often. Yeah, yeah it's actually yeah. part of my rider. Every time we have lunch, <laughs> I like to start with an introduction. Do you have a rider? No. But when you do Actually, these speaking gigs at these like big time, you've been in huge arenas. I, I I'll, I'll be very honest. When I, I was like, like first starting, yeah, speaking like seriously, sure. Like ten years ago, I was like, oh, I should have a writer. Yeah. And then the writer said like nothing interesting. It was like, please have a water bottle and a, <laughs> and, a, and a microphone. High maintenance. And then I just got rid of it and realized oh. it makes my life easier if they know. They yeah. know mm -hmm. oh, it's a water. It's a job. Yeah. 
Well, we have like, your water. We have your green M and M's. Don't worry. Yeah. If you could, if you did request something on a rider, I love asking musicians that. What would it be? If there was one elaborate, exorbitant thing, there was just like they want Alex Benayan, they better have this for me. I, you know, there's a practical answer of what I actually do use right before speech, which what is, is that? I, have, I have a little bit. Of, I have like half a cup of black coffee. Yeah. A full cup. You'll notice. <sighs> half a cup. You don't notice. Yeah. I don't drink coffee. I have too much energy. You have so much energy. How do you even do that? Well, that's the thing. Also, this is the thing I've learned about coffee, too. Yeah. This is not interesting to anybody but on to Earth. To me, though, the crash. Okay, so I have to... I've learned if I drink the coffee like 30 minutes before the speech, yeah. then during the speech, at the beginning, I'm just like, hello! You know, like, <laughs> too much. Yeah. But if I, like, wait till, like, the five minutes before the speech to drink it, yeah. then it, like, kicks in, like, oh. 15 minutes in, and Whoa. it actually is this natural progression it is not interesting to anybody but to me (laughs) i have like a very scientific timing of when i drink my caffeine yeah interesting now what's the elaborate thing you were thinking of the exorbitant thing greg give me a buffet like yeah oh actually no this i would love one after a speech Mm. if i eat before speech i'm like very weighed down i also don't know portion control so like i would eat everything right before but Yes, there are times where you finish a speech and you wish there was like some food out there. Well, that's a perfect segue to our first segment, which is called (laughs) starters. And I want to bring you one of your favorite things in the world to ease you into this. So from Chaumont Bakery in Beverly Hills, we have... And almost oh, croissants this and a pan Fantastic. Swiss for you. Here you this go. is there you go. I'm from very. Am I allowed to eat this right now? You're allowed to, to eat later. It for sure. Yeah. Yeah. If okay, you want great. to, get into it. There you go. I mean, this we, is very impressive. Yeah, exactly. Oh, God. Now, why do you love this oh. so much? I mean, I can tell from the smell. Are you smell. kidding me? Yeah. It's just the best, greatest thing of all time. Well, you know what? Oh. We're not done there. Because our friends <laughs> I, at Goldbelly like have hooked it up with some of my favorite pastries across the country. All the way from New York City, Essa Bagel, we have a chocolate no babka, way. arugula, black and white cookies, and more. And from Philadelphia's world-famous Essen Bakery, chocolate arugula, and a fresh challah. Yeah. Sit back, relax, and enjoy. You are now in the zone. Thank you, Goldbelly, for making this possible. Yeah, thank you to everybody. (laughs) I'm like salivating right now. This is insane. You don't know how hard I'm using willpower to not rip through all of this right now. Well, feel free. I mean, this could be uh, sit back, relax, and enjoy. This is a podcast. So, yeah. This is great. That's right. Now, that's one of your favorite things. All podcasts to start like this. This There you go. Yeah, we take Uh, care of our You have a good system going. Very good. We take care of our guests here. So does Gold Belly, making this possible. Mm. Both Essa Bagel, Essen Bakery, world-class pastries from across the country. Made fresh yesterday, delivered here today via Gold Belly for you to sample. <laughs> I highly recommend one of those chocolate rugolas are incredible. Enjoy. You're not going to have one? Uh, yeah, I'll have one. Give me one of those, actually. I want this. Yeah. Oh. My Would you God. guys like a little chocolate rugula? I mean, everyone can have something. Well, all right. Yeah. You're sure? Mm. Okay. You got everyone. It's good. It's really good. It's great. Yeah. Very successful podcast you're running here. That's all we do. Now uh, you just watch us eat for the next hour. That's the show, pretty much. Right. Yeah. It's pretty good, though, right? I would love to be invited back onto the show. (laughs) Anytime. We take care of you. You know, got to ease into it here. So, so good. Not bad, right? I know. I know. Mm. Well, don't worry. You get to take the. the... Right. 
<laughs> if you want a loaf of challah bread in the middle of this, you know, feel free to dive in and divulge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you don't have to eat that now. We can give it to you later if you would like. I'll you know, we'll save it. Yeah, yeah. You try. Wow. I appreciate you oh respecting the the food here. Are you kidding me? This is literally my favorite fruit. <laughs> if, this is a, if this was backstage before a speech, it would turn out to be the worst speech. Yeah. Now I walk out with like chocolate, chocolate on my your face. face. You would crash after that for sure. Now, I mean, do you have memories? Why is this one of your favorite places, the Chaumont Bakery in Beverly Hills? What is it about this bakery in particular that you love? It's actually interesting. The first time I ever had it. And they're not related in my head. They're not related to the memories, but mm. first time I ever did have it, though, was the morning of my dad's funeral. Wow. And I know that sounds like very dark for like a my favorite food, yeah, but sure. my mom, my mom is just like, you know, the greatest mother of all time. Mm -hmm. And of course, on like the morning of her husband's funeral, all she's worried about is like making sure the kids are, you know, sit, like feeling good, yeah. like nourished and. So, of course, she wakes up at, like, 6 o'clock in the morning on the day of the funeral. And the only, I think, bakery nearby mm -hmm. I was open at that time was Chamon. Yeah. So, she went in. And she knew my favorite food was croissants. Yeah. So, she's the best mom of all time. And wow. she goes and gets all these things and picks us up um, for the day of my dad's funeral. And you're just, I don't need to explain, you know, what that feels like. Uh, but what I will explain is the feeling of love you feel when you open the car and you're ready to just like be a grump and be mm. depressed and your mom is holding like your favorite food. Wow. Yeah. At, you know, eight o'clock in the morning. Yeah. And yeah, I remember it just being, uh, it was hard. It was hard to feel like the world is out against you mm -hmm. in a time like that when you have still one parent who's around and who mm. loves you that much and is taking care of you that much. Yeah. And then from that point on, when I would go there, it would be in happier times. And sure. one of my best friends, Kevin Heckmad, we yeah. would go there all the time together. Um, we had his birthday there that morning. And I would actually edit the third door. Some of the editing sessions at the third door were at that bakery, too. Really? Um, wow. So it actually became like a, a, a favorite. Ugh. Well, that's great. This is extremely hard to focus. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'll give a literally, it's like pumping. I, it's like putting, uh, you know, an extra drug addict, like all of it right now. And they're like, please have a thoughtful conversation. Yeah, yeah. We, we'll move it away for right I'll now. I'll have one last one. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> get after it. And don't worry. Afterwards, you can take that whole platter home with you. That is for you, Alex. Oh, Enjoy. This is really nice of you. You're welcome. You're welcome. I And, you know, I'm proud of you that you're eating it, too. Some guests are afraid to eat on camera. Some, you know, they, they've got strict diets. You go for it. Live life to the fullest. Oh, That's right. I your like viewers it. know how to skip 15 seconds forward if they don't want to watch me. <laughs> right. I, they're definitely going to want to go to Shawmont Bakery or uh, <laughs> Essa Bagel or Essen Bakery after seeing mm. all of this. That's all right. Insane. Well, it's time to get in the zone. This is a question that I ask all <laughs> so of my fun. guests here. This is great. <laughs> this is great. You've already, you've already been in every other podcast and fun factor in the first five minutes. Great. <laughs> Take that every other podcast ever. There you go. Uh, all right. So in the zone is a question that I ask all of my guests. And what does it mean to you to get in the zone? You mm. hear professional athletes describe that place mm -hmm. all the time. Everything slows down around uh, around them. They feel like they can't miss. They get hyper-focused. For you, you've channeled that now 
speaking, a performance element, but also writing. When you had to, you know, write this and you have writer's block, but you have a deadline you're up against, you need to get in the zone, that free flowing state. Have you identified how to get there, how to stay there? And can you describe what that feeling is like for you? Well, I know what it's like for me. And out of all the things that I do in my line of work, the thing that makes me feel the most in the zone is during a Q&A session during a speech. Mm. I don't know why it's, it's sort of like that phrase, you know, do you choose your passion or does your passion choose you? I don't know why, yeah. but it's just one of those things I'm sure you have your own thing. Everyone has their thing. Yeah. Um, and every now and then I'll be doing an in-person speaking event and during a Q&A, I know it sounds ridiculous, but it feels like like my soul like merges with like all of the souls and the energy in the room and you sort of become one. Mm. And it doesn't last a long time. I, the closest I've heard someone describe what I feel mm -hmm. is when I hear like big wave surfers mm -hmm. talk about like right when they're in the wave, sort of like everything melts away. Yeah. I'll feel that for like wow. 15 seconds. Yeah. And it's a weird it's it's one of those sensations that you can't make happen. It sort of happens to you. Do you realize it when you're in it? Yeah. Or? Uh -huh. yeah. No, I, I go and I can remember like I can close my eyes and think back to specific moments where I'm like, oh, this is it. Like this is the feeling. Wow. Uh, and it's really fun. And it's really magical. And yeah, when you close your eyes and think back to one of these moments, these Q and A sessions. I mean, you've spoken in front of tens of thousands of people at a time. Sometimes more intimate settings. Are there any that come into your mind's eye, whether it's one yeah. of these moments, one of these questions that you've been asked, one an exchange that really has stayed with you over the years? There's one that's the most like chiseled into my eyelids. Okay. This was about two years ago, two, three years ago. I'm at the Golden One Arena in Sacramento. Yeah. And I'm giving a speech to, I think it's about like 3,000 people. And most of them are young in their 20s. And it was for a private company, a coffee company, and essentially the whole audience was the baristas for the coffee company. Mm. It was like an employee morale event. Yeah. So I'm doing my normal thing. It's a one hour event for 30 minutes. I'm giving you know my normal stories, and then the next 30 minutes I open up a Q and A. It's like very. It's almost like very cinematic. They had these like four microphone stands throughout the arena, and the spotlight would like shoot on mm. each microphone. And the first person, the second person, it's going really well, and the energy is incredible. And then there's when you're standing on the stage, there's a countdown clock, right. sort of like a basketball shot mm. clock. Yep. And it's coming down to like the final ten seconds, mm. which is when you're supposed to wrap, wrap up. it up. Yeah. But something in me, I was just like, let's just squeeze in one final one. Okay. Like it wasn't supposed to happen; it was supposed yeah. to be done. And sure enough, boom! The final person says hi. And she says her name is Amanda. She asks me a question about whether she should, she said she's in college mm. and whether she should finish college and if it's necessary to succeed in life. And there was something about like the tone of her voice that I knew there was something underneath her question. So mm -hmm. I just said, look, I do have a response to that, but if you don't mind me, and by the way, it's like in front of 3000 people, right? I'm like, do you mind me asking what's making you ask that question? Mm -hmm. And then she just starts like sobbing. Wow. 
and I sort of just don't say anything. I just let her have the moment. Mm -hmm. And she explains that about 30 minutes earlier, she had checked her phone and saw that the financial aid department of her community college cut her financial aid. She knew she wouldn't be able to afford the semester without the financial aid. Um, and her dream was to be an event planner. And she didn't know if she could ever you know, succeed without a degree. And she essentially felt in that moment that her life was sort of falling apart. And, you know, I didn't have an answer there, but I definitely knew there was 3,000 other people in this room who loved her, even if they didn't know her. Mm -hmm. But just they were all part of the same tribe. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, essentially I just said, the only thing I can think of, I said, I don't know what the answer is here, but I just know there's a room full of people who love you and we'll figure this out by the end of the day. Mm -hmm. Like, just like, you know, keep the faith. Yeah. And then I hear someone from the audience. Once I say, you know, it'll be figured out. Don't worry. Yeah. Someone in the audience yells. And then someone else in the audience also yells. And I can't really hear what they're saying because it's a stadium. Sure. And then they all start chanting the same word. And then I hear they're saying the word Venmo. And I, I literally, I, it didn't register to me. And someone in the front row literally had to spell it out. They want to know her Venmo account. Mm-hmm. And I look over like to the CEO of this company sitting in the first row who hired me. Yeah. This is like, I knew this is like not an appropriate normal thing. And I just <laughs> sort of looked at him and I was like, yeah. sort of saying, I'm going to go for it. Yeah, yeah. And I said, Hey everyone, I know this is crazy, but Amanda, do you mind saying your Venmo account and just, we'll see what happens. Yeah. And she was so, she's like, no, 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 that's not why I asked the question. Right. And the audience just kept chanting. Yeah. And I said, Amanda, just give the people what they want. Yeah. And she spelled it out and a genius person in the on the AV team typed it onto the Jumbotron. Oh wow, nice. And I just see all these kids take and by the way, you have to remember these are baristas working on minimum wage. Yeah. So I'm assuming, you know, maybe a dollar or two. They Five take bucks. out yeah. They all take out their phone. And I think Amanda um had lost a you know a, a five thousand dollar scholarship. Mm. She woke up the next morning with six thousand dollars in her Venmo account. Wow. And it was just one of those moments where you feel like you're part of something that's bigger than you, yeah. uh, that you didn't even do, but you just were lucky enough to be there and be in that space. And cool. yeah, that's one of those moments Very that cool. I'll always remember from my whole Talk life. Talk about crowdsourcing, crowdfunding. Literally. Right there. Literally. And first of all, like the Venmo corporate people were like freaking out. Like <laughs> this is the best story we've heard in yeah, years. Yeah, absolutely. That's um, great. So it was really, really, really beautiful. Wow, that's really cool. That's very special. Now, I've read your book several times and it's fantastic. Thank and you. I know you've done tons of press. Many people have read your book, but I'm sure there's a lot of people watching this episode here today who still have not discovered it. So I do want to get into a little bit about this book, how it came to be and what it is. And, you know, the third door a lot of people ask you what is the third door but i want to cover more about the wild quest to uncover how the world's most successful people launch uh -huh. their careers because that's what you set off to do is to track down the world's most successful people and figure out how they got their foot in the door how they started we're talking about people like bill gates lady gaga larry king maya angelou jane goodall jessica alba quincy jones many many more these are all people that you were able to through a combination of persistence luck tenacity putting yourself out there track them down and get time face to face with them to learn from them um first why did you want to take this mm -hmm. quest well there's the reason that i was aware of mm-hmm 
the reason I was aware of was I was 18 years old. I was a freshman in college and I was spending every day lying on my dorm room bed, staring up at the ceiling to understand why I was going through that. You have to understand that as you know, I'm the son of Persian Jewish immigrants, you know, MD stamped on my behind, <laughs> you know, path to become a doctor. Yeah. And as soon as I got to college and the idea of me not becoming a doctor even entered my mind, I sort of spiraled into this life crisis of what am I going to do with my life? Mm -hmm. And the worst part was I not only didn't know what I wanted to do, I felt I couldn't blow my cover and let my parents know that I wasn't thinking of being a doctor. Mm. So sort of living this double life. Mm -hmm. You know, I'd go to pre-med classes during the day, but then I'd go home into my dorm room and just, you know, panic and say, this is not my life. Yeah. That, and what's interesting, and I think about this a lot, sometimes that tension, and I know a lot of people, especially at a time like this right now, feel that inner tension of sort of something's not right. Mm -hmm. And it's so easy for us to demonize that tension. But the truth is, it's that tension that's the seed for change. Mm -hmm. And if you can actually sit with it and ask it questions, it's trying to push your life forward. Mm -hmm. And what ended up happening was that inner tension, the staring at the ceiling of what am I doing with my life, made me start searching for answers. Yeah. And I started ripping through business books and biographies, self-help books, looking for not a particular age in life, but really a stage. You know, as you mentioned, when no one's taking their calls, no one's taking their meetings, how do these few people find a way to break through and launch their careers? And eventually I was left empty handed. And that's when my naive thinking kicked in. I thought, well, you know, if no one's going to write the book I'm dreaming of reading, I'll just go learn it myself, you know, throw it together in a book, yeah. share it with my friends. I'll be done in a few months. And that was the start of the third door. And I'm glad you mentioned being naive because that is such a valuable asset. Because had you known the challenges <laughs> that lied ahead, had you known yeah. how difficult it would be, would you have even taken this path, taken that first step? Is being naive really the key to doing and creating things that feel you know, unattainable looking back? I think a lot of people, mm -hmm. a lot of people understand the value of being the expert. Mm -hmm. You have more money, you have more resources, you have more connections. You understand the game better, and it's so easy to be like, oh, look at the big companies, yeah. look at the big politicians, look at the big musicians who have all the resources. Mm -hmm. And that's true. Mm -hmm. But there's something about being the amateur, mm -hmm. about being naive, about being the sort of the knucklehead. The underdog. The underdog, where the expert views a situation through a lens of restriction and limitation because they understand the way the system works. Mm -hmm. The amateur looks at it through a lens of possibility. And yeah. it's the person who's just starting out. It's the amateur that says, well, why not? Right. Because they haven't been beat up over the years. They don't know what's not possible. So that's where the idea of, well, why, why, why not just call Bill Gates? And my, in hindsight, it's actually a preposterous idea that's very silly and a waste of time. <laughs> right, right. But I thought, well, why, why wouldn't they want to help a young person? Yeah. And uh, to my surprise, they, uh, you know, Bill Gates did not answer press at BillGates.com. <laughs> it took much longer. But it was actually that question of what if. Right. And that idea of possibility that set me off on the course. And that's the most important thing you can have. Well, it's incredible the, the journey that you went on. I want to read a couple of quotes that people have said about the book, The Third Door. 
Benign's hustle is insane. He crouched in bathrooms, chased people through grocery stores. He did whatever it took to make this dream happen. The extents he went through will inspire you to keep grinding on your path. If you're hungry to succeed, trust me, read The Third Door. That's Jermaine Dupri who said that, which is wild in itself. And I really love this one too. The Third Door is that rare book where the author lives the advice he's sharing. Alex Benign redefines the meaning of entrepreneurial hustle and hard work. And that is one thing that's incredible about the book. You're learning as you're reading. You're being inspired. You're learning at the same time, yeah. but you're doing it at the while you are learning these lessons. And that quest as you're uncovering and getting to all of these people to learn from them, it's really you that we're learning from on your quest, which is uh, an incredible part of the journey. Thank you, man. You made this insane list of names. It's like, I want to learn business from Bill Gates, and I want to learn how to interview from Larry King, and I want to learn uh, you know, how to, how to write from Maya Angelou. If you could go back in time and write that list again, but you could add one name, Ooh. who would it be? Ooh. It would definitely be Barack Obama. Mm -hmm. Barack Obama, for sure. Um, What's interesting is I always had a connection to him. At the time when I was going on the quest, he was the president of the United States. I thought, well, if there's one person you won't be able to sit down and interview. Even your like, naivete. Even, yeah, yeah, your naivete said don't reach for that one. <laughs> um, and what's interesting is over the years, actually, the connection I felt to him has deepened over the years. Mm. Um, so that's the person I would, I would add to the list. Obama. Well, it's it's not too late. Maybe they're the fourth door. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, exactly. right, right. Uh, Talk a little bit about the how persistence has played a role in this quest, mm. in your life, and also how there can sometimes be a little too much persistence uh, when you're dealing with anything in life. Because there's a, a fine line of if you're just persistent, you will succeed versus it's how you do things that matters too. The biggest thing I've learned about persistence. Yeah is I always assume persistence is about knocking on one door a hundred times. Mm -hmm. It's taken me a lot of painful experiences to realize that persistence is actually about knocking on a hundred different doors. Persistence is not knocking on one door a hundred times. It's knocking on a hundred different doors. Mm -hmm. And I've had to learn that the hard way. Um, I ended up spending eight months writing letters to Warren Buffett and trying to hack his shareholders meeting. And finally, when that didn't work, I ended up getting the interview with Bill Gates. And when that did work, mm -hmm. Bill Gates' office loved what I was doing and tried to introduce me to Buffett's office to make the interview happen. Yeah. And by the time they made the introduction to Buffett's office, Buffett's office even told Bill Gates' office, please tell Alex no more contact. <laughs> yeah, right. And it was one of those situations where you had to learn. Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes it's the punch to the face that teaches you the best lesson. Uh -huh. um, and that's what the book and the book was not intended to be about me getting punched in the face over <laughs> and over and over again. Right. Um, and what's funny is when I set out to write the book, that wasn't the intention. And then when I was on the journey and I was actually starting to put words to the page, mm -hmm. I was natural instinct leaving those parts out of the story. Mm. And thankfully, mm -hmm. I had a very wise mentor who's a phenomenal writer by the name of Cal Fussman. Mm -hmm. And Cal would read the chapters I would write yeah. and then ask me, well, I'll tell me the real story. Right. And I'll tell him the real story. He's like, oh, this is a hundred times better. Yeah. And I would cringe and I would be in physical pain yeah. telling the stories of how stupid I was uh -huh. and all the mistakes I made. And he said, no, that's, that's the story here. 
Yeah, uh, it's right. It makes it more relatable. It makes your wins. We're, we're with you so much more because we know the journey that it gets. You know there. how much I got punched in the face. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Um, and and the lessons that you learn that, you know, that's we all get punched in the face, but it's how you bounce back. It's how you respond from those moments, those incidents in life. That's that's what matters. There's only you can control what you can control and you can control how you react to things. Yeah. And I think what's interesting about persistence, too, is that there might be a misconception mm-hmm. that I'm a person who never quits. It's not true at all. I can paint you a just as honest of a biography of myself. Uh-huh. That's me quitting, like quitting basketball as a kid, quitting, <laughs> like quitting every sport, quitting the science Olympiad team, quitting. You know, I dropped out of college. I, <laughs> right. You know, I every you know, I dropped. I quit pre-med. I, uh-huh. you know, there's a long, long list of things I have quit. Yeah. But in hindsight, I can see. And there's friendships I've quit. There's mm-hmm. relationships I've quit. There's a lot of things I've quit. Mm-hmm. What I've learned, though, is that there's a difference between um, giving up and healthy quitting. Giving up on something you love haunts you for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. Healthy quitting something that's not right for you frees you up to go pursue your path. And I think our society has this way of saying, Sticking to something yeah. to the end is always the best thing. I don't know. I don't know if you're in a relationship that's abusive or something like that. Or, you know, maybe the divorce is the win. Mm-hmm. You know, right. you didn't know what you were getting into. Maybe that's the win. And yeah. I know that's like even a weird sentence to say, but yeah, maybe that is true. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe, you know, when you go to a, a job that you think is going to be your dream job and you get it and you just get there and you're really disillusioned. Maybe like quitting a job after three months of being there, like isn't horrible Yeah. if you can afford it. Right. And then by the way, sometimes like you can stick to something for like 10 years and it's like not working out, but you stick to it. Like, and you keep going. It's that could be the most amazing thing. Right. So I do think there's something about persistence when it's for the thing that, and only, you know, is your calling. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's, it's the water to the plant. Yeah. You have to water the soil with persistence because it just takes time. Right. But to pour that water onto things that isn't your calling, I think quitting is actually a great, is a great way to go about it. Okay. Um, yeah, yeah, no, you're right. I think you're right. You have to identify what is for you and what is. Yeah. And most way. business books don't talk about the, the beauty of quitting. Yeah. Um, but I've actually learned a lot in my life that, oh, it's actually the times I quit things that allowed me. It took courage to quit. It's true. In order to pursue the things that I actually felt called to do. So looking at this list of amazing people who you were able to track down and get in touch with and, and learn from, I'm curious, what about you is it that leads to your success, being able to reach mm-hmm. all those people? And what is the common denominator between all those big names that I mentioned and many others, Sugar Ray Leonard and, and many others throughout this book? What is the common denominator for them that they gave time to someone like you before you were a Oh, I think author? that's a great question because I think it's something that people miss. Mm. There is a uh, almost a, a filter for the people who are in the third door, mm-hmm. which is that they are... They weren't the only people I asked. Right. They were just the ones who were nice enough to say yes, mm-hmm. even with all my persistence. Yeah. They were the ones nice enough because there's a long list yeah. of people who said no, and I was just as persistent with them. Yeah. So um, 
you know, I give a lot of credit to the people in the book mm-hmm. having, you know, Bill Gates didn't need my book to become more famous. Right. He didn't need to be more relevant. Mm-hmm. There's a part of him that whether it's strategic or the heart, who knows, but who does devote time to helping the next generation. Mm-hmm. There is, you know, Maya Angelou got no benefit you know, her books have sold tens of millions of copies. She didn't need her interview in order to reach people. Yeah. But there is something about, I think, I, at least it's the way I like to view it, yeah. that these people, there was just, there's just a part of them that has always been devoted to wanting to share their story to help the next generation do more and be more. And do you think they saw that in you? Because that's, I know you, that's that's what you want to do. And in success, and as you're just at the beginning of your career, not all this before your 30th birthday, I feel like one day there's another generation who's going to track down you and want to come to you. You're likely going to give them time to give back to. And I appreciate that. But there's that common denominator. Do you think any of them, even subconsciously, recognize that in you, that you had this shared <sighs> bond? I, I don't know if any of them were like, oh, Alex is just like me. No, definitely yeah. not. I, what I will say is that whenever I put out an interview request mm-hmm. or saw them at an event and made my pitch, the times they said no mm-hmm. is when I focused on, oh, this book is going to do this and this and this and it's going to change the world and all this stuff. Yeah. It fell flat. Yeah. Whenever, and it was sort of like a roll of the dice sort of based on my mood and because I wasn't really scripted. I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't have any preparation. Sure. But it was the times when I actually told them, like, I, you know, this isn't about promoting a product. This isn't about, you know, press. This is about my belief that if all these people come together and share their best wisdom with the next generation, young people can do so much more. Yeah. And for a certain group of people, that does resonate. Mm-hmm. And I think what you end up seeing with the third door are the people who that part of their heart can be unlocked mm-hmm. no matter how successful they are already. Well, they're very successful, some of the world's most successful people, but in meeting them, talking to them, studying this, writing about it, I'm curious, what's your definition of success? It's interesting. What's coming to my mind, because the way my brain works is I ask these questions to other people and I sort of organize it. So yeah. Steve Wozniak gave me a great definition. My Angelou has a really good one. Um, what I will say is what I do, what I subscribe to and what I resonate with mm-hmm is that everyone, like you say, everyone has their own definition, whether you know it or not. Mm -hmm. And if you don't know that you have your own definition, surprise, you're using someone else's that they put on you when you didn't realize. Mm -hmm. Something that I like to think about is, am I doing something that feels aligned to what I believe is my calling on my path? Mm -hmm. Am I doing it in a way I'm proud of? Because even if I achieve it, if I'm doing it in a way I'm not proud of, I lose sleep at night, I don't look in the mirror and smile. Uh, And am I enjoying the process? That doesn't mean it's always fun or it's not hard work. Sure. But is there like a genuine, I can tell you, I can, I'm sure you've been in this position. You're just grinding it out on no sleep and you're just putting it all out there. And you're like, in a weird way, like so proud of yourself and you feel so good about it. And there's other times where you're working like half days, but you just feel like completely out of energy. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah. Am I doing it in a way that feels really good? So am I doing something that feels aligned? Am I proud of the way I'm doing it? And am I enjoying the process? Um, even if it's not pleasurable, yeah. am I enjoying being on this path? 
Yeah. And all of those things I've noticed lead to me helping people in a way that's unique to me. And it leads to me also feeling creative and expressive and also spending time with people I love, whether it's family or friends. Because when I don't see them, it doesn't feel good. No matter no matter how much success, it doesn't feel Do good. Do you feel like you are successful based on that definition? Yeah, you know, it's such a weird thing because to say yes, but I've like sort but, of like yeah, come. Yeah, but uh, that, I've come your to the definition. T- yeah, by my definition, I also, you know, there's a great quote by Maya Angelou that says, humility is amazing, modesty is disgusting. That's sort of paraphrasing. She's uh-huh. she's more eloquent than me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but yeah. the message of that quote, she's pretty mm-hmm. much says, you know, false modesty is just a facade of meekness mm-hmm. to try to get people to like you. Mm-hmm. And I've realized like I've tried to drop that out of my personality. And yeah, I, I'm to me, yeah, I think I'm on my path and I'm doing great and I'm really proud of the way I'm doing it. And you know, if I in my definition of success isn't a singular place, but it's actually a almost a, a practice or a place that you're on a path that you're on. Yeah. I feel I'm there. So I'm, yeah. I'm grateful for it. Well, you definitely are there, but I want to take a look back at <laughs> thanks for uh, stamping it. I agree. Approved by Jason. Approved. You're right. Yes. You pass. <laughs> yes. On to the next one, but let's see way back when, how you got here. This is a segment that we like to call rewind. And <laughs> I want to go way back on social media to your one of, if not your very first ever Instagram post, because it's interesting seeing the very start of the journey. Here it is. Do you know where this is? You've been there. Where is this? This is Austin Biznow's apartment in 2012. Really? And you might have been at that dinner. Yeah. It was like Elliot was there, like Taylor and a bunch of people. Emily Greener was there. Um, Uh, So let me read this out loud. The one thing all famous (laughs) authors, world-class athletes, business tycoons, singers, actors, and celebrated celebrated achievers in any field have in common is that they all began their journeys when they were none of these things. When you look back at where you were before you began this journey on the third door, before you even knew that was the path that you were going to take, this is one of your posts. And I'm glad that you feel that you are successful because you absolutely are. But as you take moments like this to reflect back at how you've traveled the world and the millions of people that you've reached, how does it hit you? Oh, it's so fulfilling. Mm -hmm. This is like the feeling I'm feeling right now is why I was able to answer the question you said right before. Yeah. Um, I remember reading this dozens of times at my friend Austin's apartment and thinking, I think, think that's right. Mm-hmm. Cause at the time I was like really starting out on the journey in the beginning. Yeah. And I remember thinking like, I'm pretty sure based on everything I've read in these biographies and I had already done some interviews at that point, like this, yeah, that this is true, mm-hmm. but I don't know for sure, but I'm willing to test it. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, no, it's true. And I'm not just saying about myself. I'm just saying about all the other people that I've met. Like, It just, you know, Forbes magazine has no incentive to make Warren Buffett look relatable. Mm -hmm. Why would you buy a magazine and pay to read about someone that is a human being just like you? No, in in a weird way. I don't think they're like maliciously sitting there. I like the people at Forbes are very nice people. (laughs) But if you think I'm just using them as an example of the larger media landscape. Trying to get that Forbes, you know, speaking gig. Okay, yeah, yeah. Stay in the good graces, right? Um, But what I will say, though, is most of our forms of particularly business media, but also 
entertainment media too, like mm. Kim Kardashian. There's no incentive to make the viewer go, oh, that person's just like me. Because mm-hmm. by the way, the end result of that realization is you turn off the fucking TV. Mm-hmm. When you mm-hmm. go, oh, they struggle just like me. They're a human being just like me. You turn it off. You keep watching mm-hmm. when you think that there's something very special about those people and you have an insight into a special world. Yeah. So that quote sort of like pierces the the reality or the facade, excuse me, it, yeah. and shows you the reality yeah. that, yeah, like my favorite things about like, you know, Bill Gates, for example, was sure. reading about how he was so terrified when he was making his first cold calls for Microsoft mm. that he played rock, paper, scissors with his best friend, Paul Allen. To say who had to make the call, Bill lost the rock, paper, scissors game and said, fine, I'll make the call, but I'll pretend I'm you. And he changed his voice and said it was Paul Allen calling Yeah, because he was so afraid. Wow. These stories, I think, not intentionally, but naturally go unspoken mm-hmm. because it's so much easier in our society. And it's not our society. For thousands of years, human beings have idolized other people to make them to make it feel like the world makes sense. Sure. These people are special. These people are strong. These people are beautiful. These people are smart. There's an order to this. Mm-hmm. But the reality is that all these people we look up to, you know, you look at Barack Obama, it's very rarely talked about. But it's, he's written about it. Other people who know him have said it on the record that he was one of the worst fundraisers people had seen in, in politics mm. at the time. Like he was bad yeah and even obama himself talks about when he had to go and sort of cold call to raise money for his senate campaign right he would just go like to the coffee stand for like two hours and try to procrastinate yeah and he would take long bathroom breaks and because he was nervous and he was bad at it and just uh the reason i love that idea so much is it humanizes the people we look up to and actually reminds us that all of the imperfections we are i can speak for myself Mm -hmm. very aware that we have yeah we know our behind the scenes we know our fears our anxieties our um, limitations Mm -hmm. and then we turn on instagram and we see other people's successes and accomplishments and we go well they must have something special yeah but the truth is they all struggled just like you are Mm mm-hmm and that should give hope. You know, they those stories should be told. So I'm glad that many of them are in your book, and you're telling exactly. a lot of those sh- stories and sharing those with everyone. Now, one of your most famous stories is actually what kickstarted this journey. You've told it many times, but we'll take a look here because it's infamous now for those who know you. But for those who don't, <laughs> you famously hacked the prices right. Would you mind sharing a little behind the scenes of oh, what yeah. that means and how this journey came to be? Because it it's not it costs a lot of money to travel around the country <laughs> and try to track down Bill Gates and Maya Angelou. And oh, you see how much money people. I made right there? Thirty two thousand right there. There you go. Right. Exactly. That look on my face is one of my favorite feelings. And what's cool is as I'm thinking about it right now, yeah. I have that look on my face at other times in my life too. Yeah. Um Cause it's just, it's, it's awe and astonishment of like, it's sort of like, holy shit. You this, can't believe this. Is I, happening. I can't, I can't believe what I'm, what I'm seeing right now. Yeah. Um, 
so and essentially, yeah. Let I me set this. the stage. Yeah. Let me Please. set the stage here, right? You're you're pre med. You're looking at the ceiling. You don't want to be mm-hmm. doing this. You want to go out on this path, this journey. How are you going to fund that? You have a final the next day, and you find out that you can get tickets to the prices right. Right. So I'll hand it off to you. So I'm in the library at the time. It's two nights before final exams. Mm-hmm. I'm still pre med. And I'm in the library and I see somebody and I, the book idea was already in my head. Mm-hmm. I hadn't done anything about it, but it was sure. in my head because what I knew somewhat correctly and somewhat incorrectly, that one of my biggest obstacles would be money. Yeah. You know, traveling around the country takes money money I didn't have. So it was just sort of in my head. So I'm in the library two nights before final exams and I'm doing what everyone does in the library right before finals. I'm on Facebook <laughs> and I'm on Facebook and I see somebody offering free tickets to the price is right. Mm-hmm. As you can see by this very handsome picture, I went to USC yep. college here in Los Angeles and the price rate is filmed not too far from where I was at school. Mm-hmm. And my first thought was, well, what if I just go on the show and win some money to fund this book? You know, not my brightest moment. <laughs> right, Plus right. I had finals in two days. Yeah. It, was, it was a horrible idea. <laughs> I knew right off the bat very bad idea, but it was one of those times. And I would imagine you've had these feelings too, mm-hmm. where no matter how ridiculous an idea, for some reason it won't get out of your head. Yeah. And the problem was I had finals and I was in the library and I had to study. So I needed to get out of my head. Yep. So to prove to myself it was a bad idea so I could stop thinking about it. I take out my spiral notebook. I'm sitting at this round wooden table in the corner of the library and I take out my spiral notebook and I write best and worst case scenarios to prove to myself it's a bad idea. Mm-hmm. I'm writing, you know, worst case scenarios, fail finals, get kicked out of pre-med, lose financial aid. Mom stops talking to me. No, mom kills me. There's about, you know, (laughs) 20 cons. Right. And the only pro was maybe, maybe win enough money to fund this dream. And it was almost if somebody tied a rope around my gut and was slowly pulling in a direction. Mm -hmm. So that night I decided to do the logical thing and pull an all-nighter to study but I didn't study for finals. I studied how to hack the prices right. And I went on the show the next day and did this ridiculous strategy and ended up winning the whole showcase showdown, winning a sailboat, selling that sailboat, and that's how I funded the book. And that's really how the journey set off. And it's unbelievable. I mean, that, that, is, that in itself is crazy and definitely grabs you in at the beginning. When I first met you, it's people yeah. are always like, tell the prices right story. Tell the prices right story. You've probably told it a million times, but it's so... Uh, just unimaginable that you would do that and that it worked that you figured out how to hack it to get on the game without really knowing how the game worked. And even as you're bidding, you didn't know what you were doing, but still somehow it paid off. And then this happened. You win the price. Yeah. And you know, my, my hacking was much less Einstein and much more Forrest Gump. Yeah. But, but it ended up working. What's crazy is I sold the sailboat that I won Yeah, for, I think I, here it is. Oh, let's, this let's is the moment. This, this is, is the moment. moment you find out exactly. <laughs> Wait, I've never noticed it. Can we go back for a second? Because I've never watched this closely because yeah. why, why would I? Tanisha goes in. She, yeah. She, Wait, hold on. Tanisha. I, I've always watched. Okay, look at, look at her. She goes. How? <laughs> I love that only because 
you know the full story. What ends up happening is Tanisha is much more equipped and qualified to be winning this show. And I'm sort of like tripping over myself like a yeah. like a moron. Um, you bid the wrong amount. Everyone was like, oh, you're I bid, joking. I, I, was, I was the beneficiary of very, very, very kind audience members. Yeah. Who... I was lucky enough to have met in the audience beforehand and they sort of understood my mission and my story and why I was there. Um, but I, I never noticed that little moment. Of, uh, she going, are you like him? She's still uh, shocked. Tanisha is not over it. Let's bring out Tanisha. <laughs> Tanisha. No, she's yeah. not here. We only and have she that. was very, I remember her being very nice, but her and I equally being very, we were on the same page that neither of us, could believe that I ended up. Uh, yeah, I don't think anyone there could, but it's an amazing start to the story and nice. your journey. Uh, it's fantastic. And then this journey would take you all over the place. You got to not only interview Larry King for the book, but got to know him. And he became, you know, a, an important figure in your life. And I want to know what this moment was like for you, because to come full circle, complete Welcome this journey, complete King this book, and then sit here in this chair. And success expert, 25-year-old Alex Benayan who hacked his way onto the prices right, used the earnings to travel the globe, tracking down some of the world's most successful people, including <laughs> Warren Buffett, Lady Gaga, Maya Angelou, and me, <laughs> in an effort to learn what they all had in common. He compiled his findings into a book called The Third Door. What are you going to do with all this? You're going to continue to write books? You're going to continue to do speaking? What's, you're only 25. What's, what's Benayan's goal? <laughs> My dream right now so yeah. is to take the third door mindset mm. and to share it with as many people as I can. Because what I've realized is you can give someone all the best tools and knowledge in the world and their life can still feel stuck. But if you change what someone believes is possible, they'll never be the same. And that's the whole point of this mission. That was a really, 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 really emotional day. Um, as you know, Larry's passed away since then. Um, it was because as you know, the way I met him was I chased him through a grocery store in Los Angeles. Um, not the way most people end up uh, connecting with Larry King or becoming um, a guest on his show one day. And what's so crazy. And again, all of this is a testament to who he is. Mm. And I mean this because it takes a person who genuinely is kind and wants to help people mm -hmm. to not tell me to screw off after the grocery store incident, yeah. not tell me to screw off after like the 50 times I like showed up to the breakfast table right. and he sort of like reluctantly just kept me, let me keep coming um, to the point where after two or three years, when the book was finally ready, he said on his own, I remember I was at breakfast with him telling him the book is almost done. And he goes, he goes, you're coming on my show. You know that, right? And I sort of was like, oh, I would love to. Thinking like, oh, this is what he says to everyone. Yeah. And then a second time, I was at breakfast, and I gave him one of the early galleys. And he said, well, what, what day are you coming on the show? And I turned to my friend Cal Fussman, who's mm -hmm. Larry's best friend. I said, oh, he's serious. And he goes, yeah. He yeah. doesn't just walk around restaurants and when are you coming on to my show? Yeah. Um, 
And it was just... Uh, what was that moment like where you, you know the whole journey you've been on? But did you catch yourself? Obviously, you're focused. You have to present well and interview, you know, answer questions. But did you allow yourself to, to pinch yourself and say, like, I, here I am. I, I did wh this. While you're talking, it's, it's similar to, like, uh, I would imagine. I don't, I don't know what it's like. But I would imagine an athlete is, like, during the game. Mm-hmm. Which is different than during halftime or pregame or postgame. Yeah. But like while you're playing, and my mind is very all over the place, mm -hmm. but when I'm in those moments when the cameras are rolling and it's on 100% log, and Larry has his power, and I've only seen a few interviewers be able to do it, mm. where his eyes, mm -hmm. and it's, it's his magic, when he looks in your eyes and you look back, everything else in the room melts away. All the lights, all the mm -hmm. cameras, all the crew melt away mm -hmm. but then commercial breaks he he breaks eye contact and all of a sudden you realize you're in this room right and in those moments when I'm in between i was like oh this is insane yeah more so not because of where i was but of where it had started right essentially chasing him and begging him to just you know talk for a few minutes and to see where it went and then yeah. the journey continued because you've traveled the country you've traveled the world with the third door yeah. and it became a phenomenon in japan check this out i pretty much land yesterday open twitter and there's like this tweet from this guy with like half a million twitter followers but he's like congratulations alex on being number one and I was like, what does that even mean? National bestsellers for all of Japan? And it's like, you know, Michelle Obama is like 18 and The Third Door is the number one book in all of Japan. Oh my God. It took giving like every single thing that I have to sell 60,000 copies in the US. And now we really like got off the airplane in Tokyo and they're like, congratulations on number one. So it's crazy. The biggest bookstore in Tokyo even had their 200 employees wear third door t-shirts to work on. <laughs> yeah, that was crazy. <laughs> Can you put into word this entire experience? Look at my face, look at my face. I'm freaking out the whole yeah. time. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's wild. To see your book, your words, your journey translated into 12 languages, to go to Japan and meet all of these people, and you're you're treated like a king. You're on every radio show. You ready for this? I'll make the story even crazier. Yeah. I'll make this I'll make what you just saw even crazier if you knew the backstory to it. Mm. About three years before what you just watched. So this is like six years ago. Yeah. So at that time, my dad had passed away earlier that year. And a couple months after my dad had passed and what's tricky, the way my dad passed was, as you know, from pancreatic cancer mm -hmm. and it was pretty much this 14 month stretch of, um, again, there's no good way to die, but there's a difference between someone getting hit by a car, which is its own trauma in and of itself versus almost like 14 months where you're in the anticipatory grief. Mm hmm so even when the funeral happens, you've already had 14 months yeah. of being in that the world is falling down energy. Mm -hmm. Two months after my dad passed, um, my friend Elliot Bisno told me, you know, come on out to my house, just spend the week, we'll cook for you. And it was really healing to just be mm -hmm. with a friend and be in nature. He lives out in Utah. 
And one night I was just like in the basement guest room of his house um, thinking like, I feel so much better now, like being in the world. Mm. Um, And I knew that I had about four months between that point and when I really was going to gear up for the launch of the third door. And I'd been working on this book for seven years. This is my heart and soul. And I knew I was going to give everything I had to the book launch and I needed to be in the United States and, you know, hit the pavement and grind it out. Mm. But I knew I had about four months where I sort of could be anywhere in the world, which at that time was a very novel concept to work remotely. Now, (laughs) you know, most people are, but at that time I was like, wow, I could sort of be anywhere right now. And I asked myself, if I had like a genie, where would I want to be right now? If I could just, and I, three things came to me. I was asking myself for one, but three came to me. The three that came to me was Tokyo, Sydney, and Cape Town. And I don't know why, but those are things that came to me. And sure enough, I booked a ticket to Tokyo. No one who I worked with knew I was there. Mm-hmm. I just went uh, with a buddy of mine, and I was just finishing the editing of my book out yeah. there in Tokyo. We're there for a week, and I'm just having like the most incredible time. I'm like feeling like myself again. Mm-hmm. And on like the second to last day in Tokyo, it's nighttime. Me and my friend Max are on a bus in Tokyo, you know, riding back at the end of the day. And the bus in Tokyo are like very quiet. They're very polite culture. No one's making noise. Mm -hmm. They're not like me. Very nice people. And I remember my friend Max and I were standing up on the bus at nighttime. And there was an old gentleman um, sitting down reading a book in Japanese. And I whispered to my friend Max because I was finishing up the book, finishing up the editing. And I said, you know, that's my dream. And he's like, what do you mean? I said, my dream isn't for my, you know, buddies in college you know, where I grew up to read the book. My dream is for this book to like help people who I may never meet, mm. whose language I can't even speak. Like That's my dream. And my friend Max was like, well, why don't you just, uh, you know, third door? Why don't you just go like self-publish it in Japan? And da, 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 da. I was like, eh, it's not really how it works. Right. The book has to come out in the United States. Then it has to go to international agents and it's a whole machinery mm-hmm. and Max was like, all right, suit yourself. I remember he literally said, he's like, yeah. whatever, suit yourself. Yeah. I said, okay. The next morning mm-hmm. I wake up to a text message from my literary agent and she has never texted me in her life. And it says, call me immediately. Uh-huh. So I'm thinking my publishing agreement is getting canceled. Yeah, right. This is a bad news. Yeah. And she's saying, call me immediately. I call her and she says, you're not going to believe this. You just got one of the best publishing agreements I've ever seen for the Japanese translation of the third door. This is the morning after. Wow. And I think, of course, my friend somehow must have told my mom who told my agent to prank me. I'm like, oh, very funny. Like, how did you know I was in Tokyo? And she yells, you're in Tokyo. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. And sure enough. Yeah. Um, before the book even came out, yeah. it got in front of an editor, one of the top business editors in all of Japan, and he resonated with it so much before it even come out. Wow! And then optioned the rights. Um, so that moment, being there in Tokyo for the launch, was already set up by this what felt like a very fateful. That's wild. Beginning. That's wild. So many stories like that throughout your journey throughout your life, manifesting things, putting it out there. and But the book starts and ends with the most important thing in, in your life, which is family. 
and that is what it always comes back to. And here's a, a you know beautiful photo uh, of your family, um, you know, all together. I know you've mentioned your your dad a lot on on this uh, as we've been talking, and uh, you dedicated the book to him. Um, what do you think he would say, seeing all that you have done today, as you continue to soar and inspire so many others? I like to think he'd be pretty proud. When my dad would get like really happy, mm-hmm. my dad was very enthusiastic and very loud. That's where I get it from. Yeah. But when he would be like really proud, he would get like quiet. Really. And he would use very few words. Yeah. Um, and I can sort of like close my eyes and uh, and feel that right now. Wow. Nice. Well, that's beautiful. I I know he's definitely very very proud of you you know a question that cal fussman who you mentioned uh always loved to ask as he's interviewed some of the biggest leaders around the world and i think he gave you this advice in the book too to ask some people this is what is the best lesson that your dad ever taught you mm-hmm. has anyone ever asked that question to, to you i don't think anyone's asked i've asked myself that yeah because um, i do know cal talks about that mm-hmm. um I think what's interesting about a parent is a parent tells you implicit lessons and explicit lessons. Yeah. Um, explicit lessons they tell you to your face, and the implicit lessons you you observe and you mm. and you make for yourself, um, whether you know it or not. What I do remember is one of the explicit lessons my dad taught me as a kid, and I remember this story, and I don't know why it feels so significant to me, but I think it just I didn't get a lot of this. You know, a lot of kids. Um, I know you have like a really amazing dad, and I, you know. I sort of like picture, like, it's a weird thing with, I like, I don't even know your dad. I sort of just like, he's been very kind to me and I've I've met him once and Mm. he was so sweet and he just like looks like the person who like, I I don't know what it was like growing up, but Mm. it looks like he's the kind of person who was like sitting you down every night and be like, Jason, let me tell you something about life. Like he just has that very like thoughtful energy. Yeah, no, I love you, dad, but I don't know about that. Yeah, <laughs> I, know, that's, yeah. I project that upon him because he looks very put together and well-spoken. Um, I didn't really get that. You know, having an immigrant family where, you know, my dad didn't really know the language that well. I don't really get that. But there was one moment where it did happen. And I think maybe that's why I hold on to it. Mm. I was about eight years old and we lived next to a, a Rite Aid pharmacy. It was maybe like, two minute drive from our house. Mm -hmm. And you know, sometimes I think I was maybe in third grade and we're doing a project in class and you needed a poster board. Mm -hmm. There was like those like 80 cents. I remember literally they were 80 cents and they had like all the different colors at Rite Aid. I knew which aisle you'd go to. Yeah. And the school said you needed to bring a poster board for a project. And of course, you know, me being a knucklehead kid, the morning of the project, I go, Oh shoot, I forgot the poster board. So I'm like crying, like begging my parents to make a pit stop at Rite Aid on the way to school. You know, my dad's driving me to school. And for some reason, it was just me in the car, not my two sisters. I, I, I can't remember why. Uh, oh, because oh, because I was late. My mom must have taken my sisters, so my dad took me to Rite Aid. Okay, that explains okay, it. All right, I've always late. wondered why I was alone with him. Yeah. I was, I was late. Yeah. So we go to this Rite Aid, and he gives me, I think, maybe like a $5 bill to go get this poster. He didn't have change. He gave me a $5 bill and it was the first time I ever held money. I was eight years old. The first time I ever went into a store by myself mm-hmm. to go get something. He is in the car waiting outside. So I go inside, I go get the poster board 
I go like give the cashier, you know, a $5 bill. And for some reason, maybe she was having a rough day or it was, she gave me like $20 back in chain. Mm. And I'm thinking like, I am rich. <laughs> this is amazing. I made money on this. I, I made money yeah. and my parents did struggle financially. And I remember thinking like, I'm going to be a hero going back into this car. Yeah. I got my poster board and I made money. Like this is, yeah. um, and I remember just like thinking like, don't say anything. As I was leaving the store, like just like get out of here. Like you just, you just were walking out with cash mm -hmm. and I get back into the, into the car with my dad. And you know, he sees a smile on my face. Like what happened? And I tell him the little thing and I give him like the $20. I'm like here, dad, it's, you know, it's for you. Um, and I remember the look of disappointment on his face and i was very shocked and surprised mm. by that even at eight i remember expecting him to like cheer me on yeah um, and i remember very vividly i remember exactly where we were parked where he told me at the end of the day her manager is going to go through her cash register and if she comes up short the manager is going to assume that she stole the money mm. and she might lose her job because of this why don't you go back inside and give it to her? I remember feeling like, like I was a bad, I remember feeling very bad and mm. uh, down doing it. And I was like, Oh, my dad is like, and I did, yeah, nothing's ever right for him and stuff yeah, like that. But yeah. I remember growing up um, and always remembering that lesson Yeah, that as much as yes, my dad wanted me to like have wins and get money and things like that. When it was at the expense of someone else, mm -hmm. Uh, it didn't really pass his test. Mm. And he sort of said, you know, go back and try it again. Yeah. Um, so that's a lesson I hold on to really well. That is a great lesson. It's amazing how just like a little moment. Yeah, from I, I can't even remember. I, I would be surprised if he even remembered it. Wow. Uh, wow. But that but just. the impact that those things can have and yeah. you can take with you for the rest of your life. Yeah. Wow. Wow. That is really special. Thanks, Thanks for sharing that. Um, well, you know that I love to collect things. I collect mm -hmm. cards. I collect sneakers, jerseys, homage t-shirts, all sorts of stuff. This is a segment called Cool Calm Collected where I want to know. It's really a segment where I want to feel better about myself and the, right. the hoarding that I do. And I'm like, please, do you collect too? Make me feel normal. What do you collect, Alex? I, as you mentioned, I do love traveling. It's one of the things that yeah. the third door sort of opened up within me and it yeah. made me realize like, wow, this is really where I come alive for sure. Um, and when I said, when you showed the price, right photo of my face, that face has come up in my travels. Yeah. Um, because I'm not going on game shows every week, <laughs> but I am able to go and travel and see the world and seeing the natural wonders of the world makes my face light up the same way. Yeah. Um, which feels really good. So what I do is, you know, I don't like, you know, big things, but if, I do see something on my travels that mm. reminds me of uh, something I loved about the place that gives me an emotional connection to it. And if it's like small enough that it sort of fits into my carry on luggage um, and if it like supports the local yeah. community, I'm not going to like Walmart somewhere and sure, you know, sure. I'll, I'll go and collect them and sort of like put them somewhere meaningful in my home. Yeah. And one of my more recent trips that was really, really powerful and impactful and enjoyable for me was I went to Rwanda mm. I'd never been before, and I went for my first time this past year. Um, can I show you what I got please, from Rwanda? Please, please. I would love to see it, yeah. So this is a Rwandan peace basket, mm -hmm. and I didn't know the history of it until, until I was there. 
And when I was in Rwanda, I spent about 10 days with a guide and he was helping me go all around Rwanda. When you go to Rwanda, everywhere you go, the restaurants, the hotels, everywhere you go, there's these peace baskets. Yeah. I remember him explaining to me that, yes, basket weaving has always been part of Rwandan history. But after the Rwandan genocide, they Mm -hmm. took on a very different meaning. And he explained to me that after the genocide, a lot of the men of the country perished. And... It left, you know, an exorbitant amount of widows. Mm. And not only were there a lot of widows, a lot of them were widows because their neighbor. It's a really heartbreaking part of human history. Mm -hmm. But it was neighbors against neighbors in the Mm -hmm. Rwanda genocide. And then the question comes together, okay, when the genocide's over, how do we reunite the country? And one of the things they did, my very basic understanding of it, is a lot of the women came together in sort of these Rwandan basket-weaving groups. Um, And what they would do is they would come together, and sort of the rule was, you know, as long as, you know, we don't talk about, you know, politics or what divides us, but we come together with love for the country and love for each other, you're welcome. Yeah. And these women would weave the baskets together. And by doing that, with their neighbors, mm-hmm. it started weaving the country together. Mm. And I don't know what it's like to be part of a genocide. I don't know what it's like um, to lose numerous, numerous people in your life all at the same time. But I do know um, what it's like to lose one person. Mm. And I know the helplessness that comes from grief. And the fact that these peace basket weaving groups were formed it gave almost, at least how I would imagine, a certainty of purpose of, all right, I don't know what tomorrow is going to be like, but today we're going to the group and we're, and we're weaving together. Yeah. Um, so I got one of these in Rwanda and I got one for my mom and I got one for each of my sisters and it's in each of our houses. So oh, I have one, great. my mom has one, and my two sisters have one. Um, and I love it a lot. This is in my bedroom. Wow. That's great. Well, thank you for bringing that and sharing that with us. I really appreciate that. That's a meaningful collection that you have. Thanks, definitely. Man. And as you travel the world, I'm sure you'll continue to collect amazing experiences and mementos that will remind you of those places and thank the you. people that you meet along the way. And I know to get to the third door and the success you've had on this book, you didn't do this alone. And this is a little segment we call Got You Covered, where we want you to hear from someone who helped you. Oh, okay. I like this. One of the things oh, there we go. about Alex Benign is what a great introducer he is. Jason, he introduced us. He introduced me to Elliot Bisnow. That got my speaking career off the ground. He introduced me to Tim Ferriss. That launched my podcast. And I know a woman who Alex introduced to Clubhouse, got her past the gates, She made friendships there, and when her business was in trouble, one of those contacts gave her a $100,000 accelerator boost. What? (laughs) So I'm telling you, if Alex introduces you to somebody or an idea, better pay attention. Cheers. (laughs) 
he's one of the kind, one of a kind. Yeah, one there's no kind. one like him. Cal Fussman. I, there's no one like him. In in I don't know, thirty seconds or less. How would you describe Cal Fussman? Who is he? I mean, Larry King published many books, but not many people know that Cal Fussman was the ghostwriter behind the scenes of many of those. He's published many of his own works and books. Interviewed some of the biggest leaders in the world. And can you just sum up? what he meant to you uh, on this journey and, and in your life. So as you had mentioned, the book is dedicated to three people, my dad, mm-hmm. my mom, and to Cal Fussman. Yeah. Um, and the reason I felt that that was not only necessary, but I wanted to was my parents gave me this life. Cal in a lot of ways gave me this book. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is, I had the experiences of the third door. Mm-hmm. Cal helped me learn how to write about them because mm-hmm. there's a huge difference. I didn't know this between being able to talk and talk and talk and yeah. use my enthusiasm to tell a story versus have words mm-hmm. give people that emotional rise. Yeah. Cause that is, I thought that's sort of like, I thought the difference between speaking and writing was the difference between like the backstroke and the butterfly and swimming. Mm-hmm. No, it is the difference between swimming and horseback riding. <laughs> There's two very different, right. they're both sports, but very different. Yeah. So Cal really taught me uh, more than anyone how to put these experiences into the written word. Um, mm. And in that process, he became not only a mentor, um, but a friend, but like family, his daughter is my goddaughter. And, wow. um, I, I love him very much. And, um, Cal's dad also passed away quite recently a few months ago. And I was with Cal, uh, mm. for that. And it was an honor to just be there with him at that time. Yeah. Um, I, I just love him very, very dearly. Oh, well, I know the feeling is mutual. He was very excited to do that. That was a great video. That's a very Cali video. Uh, Absolutely. Right on brand. And our final segment, final question we always ask. It's brought to us by our friends at Homage, my favorite t-shirt company in the world, of course. I want to give you an opportunity to pay homage to someone in your life who's inspired you. It could Mm. be a friend, a family member. Maybe it's someone you've already mentioned, or maybe it's someone you've never even met but they've just inspired you from afar to help get to where you are on your continued journey and all the success, your definition of it, mm. that you have had in your life up to this point. So Alex Benayan, who would you like to pay homage to? So the first person that came to my mind, yeah. which I wouldn't have expected, because um, there's a lot of people I'm very like my mom and sure. mentors. And first person that came to my mind uh, is a woman named Michelle Halimi. Miss um, Salimi is what her name was to me when I was in high school. Um, and she wasn't even my own teacher. Mm. She was just a English teacher in the school. And for some reason, uh, but she was like a younger teacher. I think she was maybe like in her early 30s. Um, for some reason, I don't know why, she just believed in me and was nice and was kind. And when you're a teenager, when I, I'll speak about myself, <laughs> when I was a teenager, yeah. And you feel left out, you feel not enough, mm-hmm. you feel, I felt many times there's something wrong with me, mm. there's some, you know, there's a reason I'm not invited to the parties, there's a reason I can't get a date, there's a reason I can't make it onto a sports team, there must be something about me that just doesn't fit into this world. When just one person, particularly someone that you actually admire and think is cool and you think is successful, when they look at you and say, you're doing great. Mm-hmm. You have a lot going for you. 
it just means so much. Mm. Um, so yeah, I'd like to say my thanks to her. All right. Well, thank you for that. And homage wants to pay homage to you as well with your own custom homage t-shirt. <laughs> there we go. There's always a way. That oh, I love that. Saying. There you go. Oh, and it's so soft. Hey, that's right. That's what we do. That's for you. And because no episode of In the Zone would be complete without your very own In the Zone trading <laughs> that's card. That's so sick. That's so great. these are limited edition. We only made five of these. We're going to have you autograph all five. One is for you. One is for our wall of fame with our other guests. And three are going to go to our fans and followers on social media. I know they're big fans of you as well. They I have a chance that. to win an autographed Alex Benign In the Zone trading card. Limited edition. Print it. There's always a way you could win it. There's a way here I love today. That. Alex, thank you for getting Dude, in the thank zone. Thank you so much. Really man. appreciate it. This is so awesome. Good. Dude. I'm glad you had a good time, my man. And well, let's get those baked goods back in here. Oh, I'm hungry. Yeah. yeah oh, you yeah. get no, it? I got some croissants right down here, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You got Dude, it. This you is so it. cool, man. Thank you. You've done many interviews. You've shared your story with the world, but we appreciate you coming here to share it with us and see a, a bit of a, the backstory and different so side fun. of you, too. You're right. This is fun. <laughs> Very fun. Really fun. <laughs> good, good. Well, thanks. I'm glad you had a good time. I had a good time, too. You're the best, Alex. Much love, it's man. been fun watching your journey. Thanks, bro. Yeah. <laughs> so cool.